So I want to dive in tonight to Revelation chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. But just because it's been a couple of weeks, and maybe we need a reminder, I want to take us back to chapter 8 and remind us of how we got here and where we are in this story. So you remember that um, chapter 1 and is a uh, an introduction to um, John of what uh, what God wants to reveal in his life and what God wants to reveal to his church. And so John has this vision of uh, Jesus Christ who is going to show him things that must soon take place. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then chapters 4 and 5 are the vision of God and of the Lamb that John has. And in those visions, God gives John this overwhelming sense of God's authority and his power and his, his commitment to justice in the world for his people uh, and for his own glory. And in those visions, John is able to understand the more of the comprehensive goodness of God, the holiness and the righteousness that are attributed to God himself innate to his person. And because of that, we then have an understanding that all the things that will take place, all of the outpouring of wrath and judgment and, and all of God's corrective action and disciplinary action in the world, those things are not counter to the character of God, but in fact, they're in keeping with the character of God. In chapter 6, you remember that John, uh, he has seen in chapter 5 this scroll that contains the story of human history. It was sealed with seven seals and written on the inside and the outside. But John said that there was a search in heaven for someone who could open the scroll. And the one who was found worthy to open the scroll, the one who came forward, was like a lion, but he was a lamb, a lamb who stood as though he had been slain. And in chapter 6, the Lamb breaks open six of the seven seals. Those first four seals are contain the story of ordinary human history. What's it like to live in a broken, fallen world? What's it like to live in a world that's plagued by economic hardship and by warfare and bloodshed? And what's it like to live in a world where people are faithful to Jesus in the midst of, of a lot of people who aren't at all acquainted with Christ? In fact, they're in rebellion against him. The fifth seal that was broken in chapter 6, it, it was something that unveiled the cost of our faith. We talked about that it's the spiritual corollary to the earthly reality. The earthly reality is that people live in a, they live as, as the people of God in a world that is opposed to God. And the spiritual corollary to that is that there are people who die on account of the word of God and their testimony in Jesus Christ. And so the fifth seal was that picture of saints beneath the altar of God who have been slain, who long for justification. They long for vindication. They want God to fight their cause. And God tells them that he will fight their cause in the end, but they're to rest for right now to be clothed in these white robes, to take solace in the righteousness of Christ himself, who is the object of their faith. The sixth seal was broken in chapter 6, and it unleashed all sorts of terror and dread. It took us to the end of human history. We were catapulted forward to see what would happen at the end of days when the great and dreadful day of the Lord came. And in the great and dreadful day of the Lord, we had this scene... Of, of unyielding, relentless terror. 
that caused all the peoples of earth to go searching, looking for deliverance. Remember at the end of chapter 6 that they were, they were looking to hide beneath the rocks. But of course there was no hiding place to be found. And they cried out that the great and dreadful day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who can stand and chapter 7 seemed to be an interlude that there's this pause between the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh seal. And we get this moment where John, he tells us about, about this twofold vision. It's a vision first of the numbered tribes of Israel and then a secondary vision of the unnumbered multitudes of the nations. And it seems to answer for us the question that we hear in chapter 6, who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God? The one who can stand, the one who can endure, who can, who can hold up, as it were, to the heat of the judgment of God is the one who is sealed with the Spirit of God, the one who's counted among God's people, the one who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord by faith in Him. You think about what we have in, in, in our world. We have things that can endure the heat and things that can't endure the heat. There are pans that can, can take the 500 degrees that most of our standard ovens have. If, if you've got a good piece of cast iron and you want to make cornbread or biscuits, you know that you can crank the oven up to 500 and you can put the cast iron in it and that lodge is not going to let you down, is it? It's going to stand up. But these little Teflon-coated things, they can't endure the heat. Who can endure the heat of the wrath of God on the day of His judgment? It's the one who's been prepared. It's the one who's sealed with His seal. It's the one who's filled with His Spirit. It's the one who's walking with Him by faith. And with that comfort and that assurance, John brings us to this breaking of the seventh seal on the scroll of human history. And you remember at the beginning of chapter 8, in the breaking of that seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, he says. Silence that is this pregnant pause. It's this thing that occurs to one remind us that nothing happens without the control of God himself. And two, to remind us of the dreadful reality of what is coming. This shouldn't be taken lightly or flippantly. We shouldn't we shouldn't think that these painful judgments that are coming upon the earth are something to be laughed at. Instead, they are something to be taken very seriously. And so there's this pause before the blasting of the trumpets. For that's what's contained in the seventh seal. Remember that we talked about how these, these series of judgments, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, they're almost contained within each other. We can telescope out and see a little bit more. And so we get to the seventh seal, and within the seventh seal are the seven trumpets. And we'll get to the seventh trumpet, and within the seven trumpets are the seven bowls. There's an increasing measure of God's wrath poured out. With the seals, it was a fourth of the earth affected. With the trumpets, it's a third of the earth affected. And with the bowls, it will be the whole earth affected by the wrath of God poured out over those who dwell on the earth. That is, those who are opposed to God and the Lamb. Chapter 8 presented four 
of those trumpets being blasted. And we mark them out in these ways. The first trumpet uh, talked about a burnt earth. There was destruction that came upon the earth itself as hail and fire mixed with blood were rained down upon the world. And then there was a second trumpet where we talked about a bloody sea and battered ships. We recalled the plague upon the nation of Egypt and how the water was turned to blood. And that's the case here, that water would indeed be turned to blood. And a third of the ships were going to be destroyed. And that was a way of telling us about the the interruption to ordinary life. That as we get closer to the day of the Lord, as we get closer to the end of human history, there are going to be increasing dread and terror poured out upon the world and there's an interruption to our economic life the seafood industry and the freight industry all those things that are shipped around the world are going to be impacted by this destructive force the third trumpet brings bitter water and broken lives we read about that in verses 10 through 11 of chapter 8 and you remember there that it said that a third of There was a star that fell, and the star's name was Wormwood. That's a sign of bitterness, but it's not just bitterness. It's also poison. It's something that brings destructive force. It would cause people to die from the water if they took it. It's a reminder to us of the fact that life is getting very hard as we get to the end of human history. People are going to find that things they could count on that that were dependable are not dependable anymore. That just as God once took the waters that were bitter and caused them to be sweet on behalf of his people, God will bitter the waters for the people of earth in an attempt to draw them to himself. The fourth trumpet at the end of chapter 8 in verse 12 was a trumpet that brought a blanketed sky. You remember there that a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were impacted by this so that a third of the day was darkened. It was a diminished light, a darkened light, maybe eight hours of complete darkness. That's one way to think about what's described in verse 12. And chapter 8 ended with a warning. John wrote in chapter 8 and verse 13, I looked and I heard an eagle's cry with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So clearly something more is coming. We've heard in these first four trumpet blasts, we've heard a series of of predictions of destruction and dreadful terror that would rain down upon the earth itself, the physical world being affected. But now mankind is going to begin to be affected personally in in our physical bodies. Those who are not sealed by the Lamb, those who are not caught up by His protective power are going to experience great hardship. It's not a good thing to be caught up under this the eagle says. And in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we have the fifth trumpet blast, which is also the first woe. So there are three woes that are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. Trumpet number five and woe number one correlate, and trumpet number six and woe number two correlate, and trumpet number seven and woe number three correlate. So here in these first 12 verses, the fifth 
trumpet, the first woe. Let's read this together. John says, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold... Two woes are still to come. In chapter 8 and verse 13, John heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This was a sign of impending and increasing judgment to be poured out upon the earth, the purpose of which was both to demonstrate that God does not clear the guilty and to draw the earth dwellers to repentance and belief in the true God. Never forget that God has plans and purposes in everything that he does. And the plans and purposes of God are always a part of the character of God. God doesn't ever act contrary to his person. He doesn't ever do anything that would, that would go against who he is. We need only go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and be reminded of who God is. That He is the Lord, steadfast in love and mercy, keeping love for thousands. And yet, He is also the one who doesn't clear the guilty. God does not simply say that He will overlook, pass by, negate our sin. Our sin doesn't get thrown away like something that has no value, like the chaff, like the tear. Instead, all of our sin must be dealt with. And it is either dealt with through the sacrificial method that God has provided for the redemption of mankind, namely the gift of His Son, or it is dealt with by us bearing the weight of our sin for all eternity. 
And so until the end of human history, God is trying to demonstrate to mankind that our sin will not be overlooked. It will catch up to us. It will cause us to experience wrathful judgment. But God is also trying to draw us to himself in mercy. We'll come to the sixth trumpet, the second woe in chapter 9, and we will see clearly at the end of chapter 9 God trying to draw mankind to himself. Even as a third of the earth is caused to experience death, God's aim is to bring people to himself, but people will continue to rebel in the hardness of their hearts. It's not unlike the experience of those who dwelled in the land of Canaan. Remember that God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, that he will make a covenant with him to be a great people and a great, have a great place and fulfill a great purpose. And yet God tells Abraham that he's going to allow him, cause him to endure, his descendants to endure 400 years in a foreign land so that the, the fullness of the Ammonites' rebellion against him might be fulfilled. In other words, God is giving the people who dwell in the land he's promised to Abraham and Abraham's descendants all the rope they can stand. He's allowing them time to repent, yet knowing that in the hardness of their heart, they will not repent and come back to the Lord. They won't recognize his sovereignty and embrace his rule over them and live their lives in obedience to him. And so God will be completely justified in crushing them. And so it is with the people of earth. At the end of days, God will pour out increasing measures of judgment in an effort to turn the hearts of the wicked to him, but they will not. Instead, they will remain obstinate to the Lord and will find themselves awaiting the day of his full and undiluted wrath. John is signaling here that these dual purposes of God are at work to demonstrate that he does not clear the guilty and to draw the dwellers of earth to repentance and belief. Now the first of those woes is to be poured out with the blasting of the fifth trumpet. John states in verse 1 of chapter 9 that he saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. We might immediately remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18 where he told the 72 that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A reality that is certainly in the background when John writes in chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, that a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We might think of those passages and think that what John sees here in chapter 9 and verse 1 at the blasting of the fifth trumpet is Satan himself, the star fallen from heaven. But I think a deeper inspection would show us that no, this is not Satan. This is an angel that's in line with God, with the Lord Jesus. 
John says that this star is more than a star. He uses the third person personal pronoun in the succeeding part of the verse when he refers to the star as he. He says he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Because the pit is the place where defiant demonic beings are kept, we know that from Luke chapter 8, verse 31, and because to unlock the key requires the permission of the one who holds the key, we should see here that the one who holds the key is the Lord Jesus. And the star to whom he gives the key and the instruction to open the shaft of the bottomless pit is one of his angels, not Satan. George Ladd notes that fallen is used here because this is the way stars come from the sky to earth. But it signifies no more than that an angelic being is descending from heaven to earth. It's not that the star or the angel is fallen, it's that he has fallen. He's come down to earth. John said that the fallen star, an angelic being, I think, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. It's two words here, bottomless and pit. The word for bottomless is the Greek abyssu, from which we get our English word abyss. So it's literally the pit of the abyss, or the pit without boundaries, without a bottom, the pit that's unfathomable. It's not that the pit doesn't have a bottom. It's just that it's so difficult to get to the bottom of it. It seems outside of the reach of mankind. It's sort of like describing the ocean. Often we talk about the ocean as though it is unfathomable. Could we get to the bottom of it? Could we let out enough line to sink down to the bottom and know how deep the ocean is? For most of us, that's outside of our reach. It's just too far to get to. And so we say it's unfathomable. So is the pit. It's not that there is no basis. It's not that there is no bounds. It's just that it's outside of the reach of mankind to know how deep this pit is. Paul uses the same word for abyss to describe the realm of the dead in Romans chapter 10, language that he probably takes from Psalm 107. In the rest of the New Testament, this word for abyss refers to a prison for demons. It's a place that John in the Revelation says is the is filled with with fire that rises from it. It's ruled by an angel. Locusts come from it, as does the beast in chapter 11 and chapter 17. And it's also a place to which Satan is bound in chapter 20 and thrown in during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus. The star that opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft, John says. We shouldn't necessarily think that this smoke represents the fires of hell. Instead, I think we're to understand that this is a part of the imagery as a whole. Robert Mounts, a great New Testament theologian, offers a helpful reminder here. Mount says it's unwise to conjecture some specific meaning for each detail of the vision. It's better to allow the text to speak for itself. Usually visions of this sort have cumulative overall effect so that the parts make up the whole which has meaning, but they themselves do not carry specific meaning. While the apocalypse uses metaphorical and figurative language with great freedom, 
It's not an allegory to be decoded before it will yield its meaning. Instead, the experience itself is often what it means. To break it down into its component parts may be to make it without understanding. So we don't look for meaning in every single thing because sometimes there is no meaning in the individual part, only in the whole. Instead, what we try to do as we look at this sort of language is to take the meanings that are given to us. When John tells us what something means, then we go with it. When we have a clear allusion to another part of Scripture, when we have a clear reference to another, another place where this similar thing is described in the Scriptures, then I think we're right to come to clear and decisive understanding of the meaning. But otherwise, just let the whole thing speak for itself as a part of the whole. Hear what John wants you to understand. What he wants me to understand is that this abyss, this bottomless pit is covered and cloaked in smoke. It's a way of reminding us of the the separation between that which is the realm of the demonic under the control of God who does not release them until they will accomplish his purpose and its difference from the world that God has created to reflect his glory. From or out of the smoke, John says, came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth. In the background of this tribulation-era plague is the eighth plague on Egypt. Pharaoh was warned in Exodus 10, verses 4 through 6, that if he did not free the people of Israel, locusts would invade the land so that no one could be seen and would eat whatever the hail had not destroyed and would fill their houses. But unlike the locusts that invaded Egypt, from the outset of this description is an indication that these are not mere locusts. Something more is being described here. Remember that John, in his writing, in the way that this apocalyptic language is used, John doesn't always have words to adequately portray what it is that he's describing. And so he uses the best, the best thing that he can, the, the word that somehow captures what it is that he's seeing. Uh, we, might, we might think about it this way. In the 1980s, most of us were around. Hey, I, even I was around in the 1980s. I wasn't talking yet, but I was around. But in the 1980s, we were introduced to the personal computer. Y'all remember? Just the other day, I, I was watching a news broadcast that was from that era about the introduction of the personal computer. And, and it's, it's just hilarious to see how it was described. But it was something completely new, totally foreign to most of our minds. And so there was this small device that was connected to the computer that allowed you to click on things rather than having to enter code for everything. What do we call it? The mouse. It's not really a mouse. A rat. But it sort of looks like one. It's similar to what John's doing here. He's taking the language that he has and trying to describe what it is that he sees, but the things that he sees are things he has never seen before. So he says, from or out of the abyss come locusts. 
but they're not locusts. If you read the description, you immediately begin to understand this is something more than a locust. John tells us that because he wants us to understand that, that this is something with greater power, something that, that has authority and sting and destructive force, unlike anything a locust could ever bring into the world. In the abyss, the place where the devilish and demonic find a home, these locusts have been held under lock and key until their appointed time, and now they are released at the will of God himself, used to accomplish his disciplining and drawing purposes. They were given the power of scorpions, John tells us. So here we begin to understand that their purpose is not to destroy vegetation, which would be the normal purpose of a locust, but to wound men in an undeniable way. In verses 4 through 6, John talks about the sting of these plaguing locusts. He says that the locusts are released so that they might bring torment or torture to those who were not sealed by the seal of God on their foreheads. The same word that John uses here for torment or torture is the same word that we talked about on Sunday morning in our study of Mark's gospel. You remember uh, that in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, uh, Jesus says, uh, Mark tells us that Jesus has this experience where he's watching his disciples out upon the water and they were, they were tortured as by the rowing, Mark tells us. It's the same word that's used here. It, it, it means it's not just that it's hard. It's not just that it's torment. It, it's, the, it's the examination as by torture. It, it's, like, it's like they're being waterboarded. It's like they're being put on the rack. It, it's real torture that is coming upon them. But notice that it doesn't come to everyone. It's to those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who haven't been marked by the Spirit. Those who haven't demonstrated that they belong to God and the Lamb. Because these locusts are ordered to leave the grass, the green plants, the trees alone, we know that they're not real ordinary locusts. Instead, they attack like scorpions with a torturous sting. They're kept from torturing those sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. This doesn't mean that those who are sealed by God are not present for this period of trouble at the end of days, but that in the midst of this trouble, God graciously spares his people from the sting of the demonic hordes. Robert Mounts offers a very helpful uh, word here, taking us back to the experience of the children of Israel in the time before the Exodus. And he writes this, As the children of Israel were protected from the plagues that fell upon the Egyptians so also will the Israel of God, now constituted by Christ and the Spirit, escape the torments that are to arise from the abyss. God is in control, and precisely because his people are sealed, they belong to him, they do not experience the wrath of God. In the middle of the torment, God watches over his people and prevents them from experiencing the worst of this hardship and horror. George Ladd writes additionally that the tribulation will be a time of the beginning of the wrath of God upon a rebellious society, 
a time of fearful persecution of the church by the beast, and, as this trumpet shows, a time of demonic activity, God's wrath will fall only on the worshipers of the beast, as we see in chapter 16 and verse 2, and God's people will be sheltered by divine protection from demonic activity. But the church in the tribulation will continue to be the victim of persecution and martyrdom as she has been throughout her entire history. Even as God spares his people the sting of this plague, those without the protection of the seal of the Spirit of God experience the sting of these scorpion-like locusts and are left wanting the deliverance that only death can bring, so they think. But John writes that in those days people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, John talks about the surface of the plaguing locusts. He moves from describing what they do to describing what they look like. In the background here is surely the writing of the prophet Joel, who foretold of an invasion of locusts in Joel 1, verse 4, that would ravage the people of God. Joel describes this horde of locusts as a nation. This is chapter 1, verse 6 of Joel. A nation that has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Joel further describes the destructive force that comes upon the people of God, writing in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that their appearances is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Indeed, as Joel prophesied, the great day of the Lord is soon approaching And as it draws near, the troubles of this world will increase and cause the peoples of earth to experience horrific, unending pain that should prompt them to turn to the Lord and away from their idols. But they will remain in their sin, hardened against the Lord and His measured corrective action. John describes the surface, the image, the the what of these locusts. According to him, they're like war horses. And he offers up seven traits which leads him to that conclusion. So number one, John says that though they were not wearing crowns, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Likely a reference to the certain victory that they will experience in accomplishing their mission. Number two, John says that they were not human, but their faces were like human faces. George Ladd says this may be a a way of talking about how intelligent they are in their mission, or maybe it's, a, maybe it's just another feature added to describe the dread, dreadful terror that marks these beings. Number three, John tells us that the locusts don't have hair. These had hair like women's hair, probably a reference to the large antennae, antennae that mark a locust. In chapter chapter 9, as he's describing this, he offers a fourth description. As with the description of the invading nation in Joel 1 and verse 6, these locusts had teeth like lion's teeth, a symbol of their fierceness and power. 
And John highlights, this is number five, John highlights the impenetrable, unconquerable nature of the locusts by comparing their scales to breastplates of iron. The sixth trait that they have is that though they not only look like war horses, but like the invading nation in Joel 2, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots rushing into battle. And then number seven. If we did not already know, this last part of the description of these locusts cements the reality that they aren't really locusts. For here we learn that they have tails, which locusts don't. And stings in these tails like scorpions, which is the way in which they inflict harm upon people for five months. Incidentally, the fact that these locusts have a measured amount of time that they are able to inflict harm is a way of saying that this is controlled, it's measured, it's, it's a specific period in which God allows this particular trouble to come upon the earth. The normal season in the Middle Eastern world for locusts to do their work of ravaging the earth is about five months. It's during the dry season. Um, you and I, we have a little bit of a summer and fall and winter and spring, but in that part of the world, there are not seasons like that. There are only two seasons, wet and dry. And so these locusts come out during the dry season. It's a period of about five months. So perhaps what John is referring to here is that normal lifespan of the locusts when they are raging their terror. But what's interesting is that where an actual locust may only be active at different points in that dry season, these locusts, these demonic hordes, they come forth seeming to be active for the entirety of that five months. It is an unrelenting dread and terror that is poured out on the world in this short period of time. In verse 11, John takes us to a thought about the sovereign that is over these plaguing locusts. He says that they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed, he writes in verse 12. Behold, two woes are still to come. These locusts are subjects of a king or a ruler. Basileia is the word for king. It's sometimes used of an emperor. John tells us that this ruler is the angel of the bottomless pit. George Eldon Ladd sees this angel and the angel of verse 1 as perhaps being the same, but I'm inclined to follow Mounts's view that this is not the same angel. I think that's right because this angel seems to be contained within the realm of the demonic, where the angel of verse 1 was outside of the realm of the demonic. So I think they're different. It might be enticing to see that this angel described in verse 11 is the prince of darkness, namely the Satan himself, because the angel of the abyss is, but because the angel of the abyss is nowhere else linked to Satan or any other angel, I think we're to take this as just another detail in the overall picture to recognize that this demonic horde is headed by some great demonic being himself, a messenger from the world of the dark. This angelic king holds two names, John tells us. Abaddon in Hebrew, and in the Greek, Apollyon. 
Abaddon in the Hebrew is used to designate the place of destruction. You all will know the word Sheol. That's a word common to us in in our study of the Old Testament. We'll probably think of that before we think of the word Abaddon. Sheol is often thought about as the place of the dead. It's the holding place. One of the things that we know is that just as redemption story has been progressively revealed, we know more and more about what God is doing in the world the more of the scriptures we read and the longer we get into the story of redemption, ultimately culminating in Jesus Christ. In similar way, certain aspects of theology developed over time as mankind came to understand under the illuminating power of the Spirit more and more about what God was doing in the world. And so in the Old Testament, in the world of the Old Testament, we don't have a clear sense of heaven and hell. What we have is an understanding of the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. And the longer that they went in their following of God, the more they understood. Certainly by the time of Jesus, they understood that there was a separation between the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. We know that because of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 when he references Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus went, of course, to Abraham's bosom. And it's a picture of paradise, of the dwelling place of the righteous in the presence of God. And the rich man who was unfaithful and who was harsh in his uh, in, in his dealings with Lazarus went to uh, went down to the place of the damned. He went to the place where the unrighteous dwell and he of course was tormented there. When we're told about Abaddon in the Old Testament there's a clear link between this place of destruction and Sheol, the place of the dead. It's interesting, though, George Ladd writes, that when John renders this word Abaddon, Hebrew, into the Greek, he doesn't do it the way that it's usually translated into the Greek. Normally, Abaddon is translated into the Greek with the the word apalia, which means destruction. But instead, John here is using a different word, apalion, a different version of this word, That instead of meaning destruction, it means the destroyer. It's a figure. It's a person. It's a demonic being. That the ruler of these locusts is the destroyer and the place of destruction is a reminder that real torment and torture are being unleashed upon the world. We can't deny this. You can't explain it away. You can't chalk it up to the ordinary course of human history. This is more than what people have ordinarily experienced. As time marches on and we get toward the end of days, there will be an increasing sense among the people who dwell on the earth, both the righteous and the unrighteous, that life is getting harder than it's ever been before. Now, I know we say that sometimes. I know we say sometimes this world is headed to fill in the blank. In a handbasket, right? I know sometimes we look around and we say, what, what has happened to our world? We don't even recognize it anymore, right? And that's true, but I don't want you to go so far into that world that you think we're, we're right at the cusp of the end. Maybe we are. 
But I sense in what John's talking about, I sense something that is going to be a clear, decisive move, something that will be undeniable by the people among the people of earth. We will look around and we will not wonder, are things getting worse? It will be evident. Everyone will be saying things are getting worse because it won't be confined to one nation. It will be the whole world experiencing this. It will be something on the order of the great crash of the 20s. The whole world was affected by that. But we got over that. This will be something we do not get over. So I want to point you to three lessons from the locusts. Number one, God is ever and always in control of this world. Do not for a moment think that he cannot stop hardship or horror. Sometimes that's what we think. Sometimes we look around at all the trouble and strife and difficulty and disaster and terror that people face. And we say, God, can you not help this? God, where are you? Can't you stop this? The locusts remind us that not only can God stop it, but he already is stopping it. The locusts are contained. They're restricted. They're held in the world of the demonic. They're in the abyss, locked up. And the one who is holding them under lock and key is God himself. God is keeping the world from spinning out of control. God is preventing the worst of disaster and destruction from happening. You and I may look around at all the wonder, wonderful horrors that our world experiences and say, God, where are you? But I think we should resoundly follow it with God. You are here because it could be far, far worse. Should cause us to take some measure of comfort. That in spite of the difficulties of living in a fallen world, we are not experiencing the worst there is. But there will come an appointed time when God will unleash a plague upon the people of earth that is undeniable, sent to us to discipline and to draw. Number two, it is not that mankind does not want to be delivered from the woeful fury of God's wrath, It is instead that we are too short-sighted often to see that God's wrathful fury is not confined to this temporal world and our temporal existence. So we would look and say, as the world is getting darker and more dreadful and filled with horrible things, we would look and say, don't you see what's happening to the unbelieving world, to the unrighteous, to those who are far from God, we would look at them and say, don't you see these are difficult times? Don't you see this is a dreadful experience? Don't you see that you need deliverance? It's not that the people of earth don't see a need for deliverance. It's that they think deliverance can come by their mere mortal death. See, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. And because of that, those who do not believe are short-sighted. They don't see the big picture. They experience the plague of the locusts who bring this unrelenting sting upon them. And all they long for, John says, is death. If we could just die, we wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. But that's not to see the whole picture. 
That's to think that the power of Almighty God that releases this demonic horde upon the earth is restrained to this temporal world, this physical earth experience and our physical earthly lives. And it is a failure to see that God's wrath continues into life eternal upon those who do not believe. In the blindness of the unbelieving mind, there is not an understanding that God will continue to pour out wrath upon those in rebellion against him forever. And so the people of earth fail to see that their death cannot deliver them from the sting of God's wrath. Only the death of the deliverer can. And then number three, I want you to remember that you belong to the Lord. That if your faith is fixed in Jesus Christ, you belong to him. He has set his seal upon you. He has marked you out as his own. And if you belong to the Lord, filled by and fixed by his spirit, then he is able to protect you through the end of human history and to bring you into his presence forever. Take comfort in the fact that that seal means something, in the fact that you belong to him. And that though there may be dreadful terror reigning all around you, God is able to mark you out in the midst of it and to keep you safe. John tells us in verse 12 that the first woe is past. Behold, two are still to come. And to this point, with the exception of those that died from the bitter water, the outpouring of God's wrath has been refined and constrained to the physical world, the earth itself, and to the punishment of human life, but not the destruction of human life. 200 million warriors are coming. In the outpouring of the sixth trumpet, there will be this forceful warfare waged against the world that will bring destruction to a third of the earth. Not just, it's, not just the world itself, but the people of earth. All with the intent of drawing men and women to God. But we will see that the darkness of the human heart abounds and people will not give up serving their idols but will go on in their rebellion against him. So for John to say that two more woes are coming is right. These are dreadful things, difficult and hard and troubling for those who dwell on the earth. So I don't want you to forget as we walk through these very difficult things that the purposes of God in this book are to bless you, to build you up in your faith, to, as Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, be used to encourage one another.
So take it seriously. Let the weight of these impending judgments rest heavy upon your heart. Let it bolster your faith in the Lord Jesus and let it inspire your witness for him in the world to those who don't believe. But in the middle of all of it, do not become so bogged down in the hard words of this book that you fail to remember that they are a promise that God will conquer all his foes and he will deliver all of his saints. Father, we pray in these moments that the word has been hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. May we know, may we know for certain, Lord, that you're in control of human history. That you created all things for your own glory. And that, Lord, when days are difficult and times are hard and we wonder where are you, you are there because you are keeping things from being as bad as they could be. Because one day before this world comes to its rightful end, they will get worse. I pray, Lord, that you remind us that what we're dealing with when we bear witness to an unbelieving world is the blindness of the mind and the hardness of the heart that prevents those who are unbelieving from seeing the full picture of your plan of redemption. It's not, Lord, that they don't desire to escape your wrath. It's that they think there is some way of escape outside of you. And so, God, we pray that in our work of witnessing to the world, you would go before us and open the minds and unlock the ears. And would you, God, penetrate the hardness of the heart so that those who are unbelieving might indeed believe. Would you do what you promised to do in Jeremiah 31 to give a heart of flesh, a new heart, upon which you write the truth of your new covenant? Would you do what you promised through the prophet Ezekiel and cause those with a stony heart to experience a heart of flesh that they might love you, pursue you, and find their way to you in faith? And God, we pray because these weeks ahead as we walk through this revelation will be reminders of difficult and hard and troubling things that will come at the end of days. May we not forget, Lord, that if we are sealed with your spirit by faith in your son, then we are yours. That our lives are kept by you and for you. That whatever should happen to us in this earthly life, one day we will dwell with you forever in your presence and never to be separated again in a place where you make all things new. So give us comfort and encouragement as we walk with you and live for you. And may we, God, sound the word of alarm to the world 
so that others might take solace and refuge in you as well by faith. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.